The reading today is uh, John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John three sixteen through 17 reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. In John 20, verses 30 and 31 read, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Um, good morning, church. My name is Matthew. I serve as the pastor here at Christ City. Uh, really uh, glad that you're here um, and uh, just welcome, particularly if this is uh, your first time or one of your first times here, we uh, pray that you experience us as a, as a welcoming um, community of faith that just seeks to point one another towards Christ and what he's done on our behalf. Um, this weekend, as Lisa mentioned, many of us at Christ City have, in, we've spent this weekend praying and fasting. Uh, we've been praying that God might meet us in our aching for him and for his work in our lives and in our world. This uh, weekend, it was a time where we as a church, we marked out a day where together we would go without food for 24 hours. Fasting is a, it's a, a regular um, spiritual discipline within uh, the Christian tradition, and Christians have engaged in fasting for generations. Traditionally, the purpose of a fast was um, for uh, the life of a follower of Jesus so that they might um, have greater opportunity to see the Spirit at work in their lives. Um, the hunger pains that can come or uh, that, uh, that show up, they serve as prompts for the believer to remind them to pray. Um, and a reminder that God is our provider and that he is the one who sustains us. We mentioned this last week that fasts are often opportunities for followers of Jesus to refocus their attention on the Lord. And throughout history, that fasts are the catalyst that the Spirit uses to ignite spiritual renewal in the life of a believer and spiritual revival in the life of a church. And that's what we've been praying about this weekend. Over the weekend that, uh, that we've just had, there's been ongoing prayers that the elders, the pastors, the staff, the leadership council, and church-wide that we have been praying for God to move in us individually, like in, in our individual lives, but also praying that the Spirit would free us from lingering sins and habits that steer us away from the lives and the paths that God has intended for us. We've prayed that the Spirit, that we would experience the power and the presence and the guidance of the Holy Spirit together collectively as we long and say, Lord, meet us here. We've been praying that God would impress upon us a desperation for his word in our lives together and a dependence on him and his ways. We've been praying for our city this weekend, for our city's leaders and influencers. We've been praying for the different neighborhoods and the different neighbors the different businesses and ministries that we cross paths with. We've been praying for 8th Street and Rosedale and Capitol Hill and Fairlawn, and you've been praying for wherever it is that you live. We've been 
spent the weekend praying for DC 127 and for minor elementary, for little lights, for the playtime project, for DC Gen, and just praying for God's kingdom to come in our presence as it is in heaven. We've been praying for those that are, that are far from Christ and his kingdom, that they would be brought near and for an outpouring of God's peace and his presence in our city. So I say all that to say that we come to this morning, um, our souls are full. I mean, we're hungry, but our souls are full. Our bellies may be empty, but our, but our souls are full. And I come into this moment, just this, this 10 o'clock hour, and I'm just anticipating. And I've just, I've wanted to be with you. This isn't the start of any glamorous initiative that we're doing at Christ City. It's just a regular Sunday. September 9th, where we gather together again to remember the promises of God, to point one another towards hope that we have in Him, but to ache for God to come into our lives, to come into our church, and to come into our city. And so before we continue forward, before we jump into John, and before we jump into our text, I want us to pray again. I want us to to pray the song that we just sang, asking for Jesus to be the center of our lives, and of our church, and of our world, and of our living so that, that we can just sing that declaration again, that our hope again, that our ache again is in Jesus and the, the centrality of his life, his work, his resurrection in our lives. And so before we keep going, I just ask Tommy to lead us again. So if you'll stand, let's declare again a prayer that we have that Jesus would indeed be the center of us. God, that's our, that is our prayer, Lord. We, we, we pray it in anticipation of its truthfulness. We pray it in um, its proof of its truthfulness, God. And, and wherever we are, whether you have or have not been the center, God, today is a new day and a new opportunity for us to look to you and declare that you are the king of our lives. That you are the one that leads and that guides, that has rescued, that has healed and opened the door for our healing. God, I pray that as we sing and as we declare, Lord, that you would by your grace receive us. That you would continue to stir in us. That you would stoke in us a hunger and a thirst for your righteousness. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tommy. He disappeared. I, um, <clears throat> I want you to think about how you would describe a good day. Got it in your mind? Like, if you think about, all right, if I could just have a good day, this is what it would be. Like, what would be the components? What would be the characteristics? What would you do if you had a good day? All right, you got it? You got a good day in your mind? Perfect. Great. Here's what I want you to do. Uh, I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to describe what is your good day. You've got, like, 90 seconds. Both of you have to share. Ready, go.
they got you flying solo over here. So what's a good day? I like it. I like it. I think like yesterday, like kind of overcast, book, relax, a little bit of football. I'll take that. I'll take that. All right, all right, all right. Let me uh, call us together. You got a good day in your mind? You got a good day? You shared what it was? You're like, oh, that's a good doubt. I'll take your day over mine. All right, what'd you got? Is somebody, one or two, what'd you come up with? Good day. Eat? The beach. The beach. Beach or eating. Eating on the beach is good. Two, great. What about you guys? Uh, what was a good day? A couple of folks. Nature. Out in nature? Hiking. Hiking? Yeah, feeling good about it? Nobody's asking you to do nothing. Just, just, yeah. Everyone's just looking at you but saying, don't, don't get me anything. Don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got it. Good. Kids sleeping in. It's good. I'll take it. I got like a parents all clapped. That was amazing. Oh, it's good. Good day over here. What'd you guys come up with? Fried chicken. Fried today with fried chicken is a good day. I'm with my man over here. Yes. That's right. If I got barbecue sauce and grease on my lips, that's a great day for me. I'll take it. It's interesting, like, yeah, Mr. Mr. Love, what do you got? Yeah, another day that you're here. That's right. I'll take it. That's, that's it. That's it. Now, um, now that you've got sort of the components of what a good day might be, if you strung those together, what I want to ask you is what would be the components of a good life? Would it be sort of the repetition of all of these days that you would just describe as a, as a good day? Uh, you know, if, if you think about it, like if I think about what a good day is, like, like I said, you know, it was sort of overcast. I had the windows up, like the breeze is coming through the house and I'm like curled up with a book for a little bit. I'm watching a little bit of football. I did some cooking. I did cook some amazing mac and cheese. You better get the front of the line for that. Like, like I was like, this is a good day. But when I think about like, w would I string those together and would that make for a good life? I'm not quite sure. If you think about like life on the beach, like I would love life on the beach, but then I would be sunburned because I'm I was a redhead when I had hair, and that that would be that would be that would be a bit tougher, you know. And I, I like I like fried chicken, but every day might be a, might be a bit much, you know. Like whatever those things are, like that that good day if you strung them together, would that make for a, a good life? Um, I, 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 um, I was thinking about this, this question um, because it's going to be an important one for us. Because over the next 11 weeks from now until the beginning of December, we will be diving into the Gospel of John. And we're going to be covering chapters in John wherein this question of what is life is the prevailing question over the course of the next several months for us. Now, a spoiler alert, I want you to know this question of what makes a good life, I am not going to answer it for you today. Sorry. Um, but I will say that over the coming weeks, as we look at Jesus' invitation to us, what will grow in clarity is Jesus' answer to what it is that makes for a good life. And I will say that in some ways, that image that Jesus puts forward, it is consistent uh, with some of the things that we've said. Maybe not the specifics, like fried chicken. But of those components of what makes for a good day. But other, in other ways, what Jesus says makes for a good life are going to be wildly different and deviant from the ways that we might imagine a good life. And before I get too far ahead of, of previewing what's ahead for us, what, and what I think will be helpful for us, is to remind ourselves of John's purpose for writing the gospel. 
In January, we started a series on the Gospel of John, and we began by looking at the first five chapters. And we took a break over the summer, and we're picking it back up now. We'll look at chapters 6 through 10. We'll uh, take a break at Advent, and then we'll start back in John in uh, the new year. When we started John, one of the first things uh, addressed in John's purpose statement, which is found deep in the book, actually towards the end of the book, uh, after Jesus' teachings, after his miracles, after his resurrection, after he has uh, uh, done all of the things, after John has told all of the stories that he wants to tell about Jesus, then he comes to, to the end of it and he says, by the way, I did all this, because, and here's the purpose of it, and it shows up in John chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The central aim of John's gospel, the the main reason for his writing is so that those uh, who are reading what is written, that they may believe and that they may have life. That's his thesis statement. This is why I'm presenting this good news to you, so that you may believe in Jesus and that you may have life, which is our initial question of what does it mean to have life? What John is arguing for, what he's, what he's storytelling for, what he's singing for, what he's praying for, what he's laboring for is so that those who read this book, and that includes us, that's you and me, is so that we might believe that Jesus is the one who rescues Meaning that John wants us to know that Jesus is the one who saves, that he is the one who heals and who embraces and who adopts. It's like John is, it's like he's writing like Jesus' resume in hopes that we will hire him to be our guide for our lives. This may be a terrible um, illustration, but I'm going to go with it anyway. I was just... um, so I was moving a bunch of things off of my laptop and onto an external hard drive because uh, somehow I had run out of space um, with the bajillion photos that I've got on uh, my laptop. And so I was moving a bunch of things off and then I was moving, it was mostly like videos and stuff, but then there were other documents that, um, that I'd run across. There was one file in there that was like a 10-year-old file of all of my old resumes and cover letters. And I was like, oh, this will be, <laughs> be interesting. And I just pulled it up and I was like, wow, I am impressive. No, actually that wasn't. <laughs> Because, you know, it's, I'm sort of like I'm listing my education. You know, I went to this college and I went, you know, did my master's degree here. I didn't put my GPA because we all have a journey. Um, <laughs> you know, but, but I'm listing these other things like the, the positions that I had at these different organizations. And then I'm listing like volunteer things that I did. I volunteered here. I was the lead of this. I served on this board and I put like my credentials. Like I'm a light at that time. I was a licensed Baptist minister. I'm not sure why I thought that was going to be really the deal breaker in the nonprofit world that I was pursuing jobs in. I put things like I was a certified grant writer, which, which was a long time in the past. If you're a nonprofit executive, please don't, you don't want me writing your grants. Like I'm putting all of this stuff into my resume and I'm sending it out into the cosmos. And what I'm trying to say is believe in me. Like, believe that I, that I can like, contribute to your organization like you. Like I, you need me in your company to write your grants or to manage your database or whatever it is. And some of you, I know that you're actually in that grind right now. And just, it just the, the way that it kind of churns you of just continuing to put yourself there and to go, somebody, take me on in the ways that that sort of um, grinds down aspects of our identity. So it was, it was both kind of funny and humorous, but then also I was like, oh man, I remember that season. And what John is doing 
One of the things that he's doing is he continues to write story after story after story of Jesus' miracles, of his teaching, of his presence, of his patience. What he's saying is believe in Jesus because in him you will find life. During, the first, during our first march through the first five chapters of John, what we find is John peeling off stories of Jesus' life and his ministry. And embedded in each of those stories is an invitation to the reader to believe that Jesus is the longed-for rescuer. He's the one that actually takes our shame and our brokenness and our lostness, and he gives us himself. We encountered it in John chapter 2. Jesus performs his first miracle at a wedding in the town of Cana. During the course of the wedding, the wine runs out, which is bad. Run out of wine at a wedding. Then, now. <laughs> For first century Jewish weddings, it was, it was disastrous. In verse 3 of chapter 2, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. We mentioned this months ago, but the use of wine in a wedding ceremony and the wedding celebration was crucial to the wedding day. Even today in many Jewish weddings, there's a blessing of the wine as a part of the wedding ceremony. So providing wine for the guests, it was an expectation that all of the guests placed on the family hosting and on the bride and the groom. Running out of wine would have been an, an absolute disgrace both for the family and for the newlyweds. The newlyweds would have had to begin their marriage with the stain of shame, having to have been the couple that would be forever remembered as those that um, didn't care for the community in their celebration. And so when Mary looks at Jesus and she says, there is no more wine, what she's actually saying is, Jesus, listen, utter shame is about to fall on this family. Is there anything you can do? Jesus asks the servants to fill up jars of water, and once they're filled, then he says, uh, scoop some out and carry it to the master of the wedding banquet. And that's when it's discovered that the water has been transformed into wine. And the wedding is saved, and shame is vanquished, and the celebration of the bride and the groom carries on. And it's not just a story about the changing of the chemical makeup of water into wine, but rather... It's Jesus having entered into the potential pain and shame of a situation, and he has taken it onto himself, and in return, he has given honor and place of humiliation. And in telling the story, John is pointing us towards hope that's in Jesus. He, he's saying this is a sign that Jesus is all of our rescuers. As the one who takes our humiliation, he's the one who takes our shame, takes our fear, and in its place, he gives dignity and honor. He is the one who meets us in our place of lacking and need and supplies us with that which no one else is able to adequately provide, that he saves us. And because of that, Jesus is one worthy of our faith and our trust and our belief. And so the story in chapter 2, it ends with this little verse in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. They believed that Jesus is the one who saves and rescues John lifts up this story of turning water into wine and the story of Jesus taking on shame and giving honor. And he's noting that because of that, others believed. 
And in that little turn, he's saying to us as the reader, to you and to me, he's saying, what about you? Will you believe? Will you take the things in your life that make for shame and disgrace? Will you give them over to Jesus and watch him turn those things around and give you honor and glory because of your belief? And in there, he's also triggering what it means to have life. We run into it again in chapter 3. One who is struggling with belief despite what he's seen and what he's come to know about Jesus. The central character in this story, John tells us, uh, next to Jesus is a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a, a religious leader of the day. He's a scholar, and he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, which is to say that, G that Nicodemus is among those that will later pursue killing Jesus. He, he's a part of the, of the enemy tribe. Pharisees are already viewing Jesus with scorn and with rage, but Nicodemus, he has probing questions. In chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus replies to Nicodemus' questions, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Nicodemus replies, But how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. There's this fascinating dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Jesus, he meets with his enemy. He, he meets with those who question who he is and question his personhood. He's, uh, he meets those that have questions about who he is. He's gentle with those that are seeking. He's patient with the curious and the skeptical. He's patient with the questions. And uh, it's in this conversation with this religious skeptic that John pins one of the most famous Bible verses on the planet. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And and then verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but they would have life to the fullest, life everlasting. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you can trust me. Even in the midst of your questions, you can trust me. You can believe in me. Even in the storm of your wondering and whatabouts, I'm one that you can place your hope and trust in. We don't have to vanquish all of our doubts in order for faith to flourish. So he meets them. And John is saying to us, as it is with Nicodemus, so it can be for you and me. And so the invitation to the skeptic and questioner is to believe even in the presence of questions. John 4. It's a story that we ran into of a royal official whose son is sick and on the brink of death. And this official is a person of means, of influence. And yet despite all that is at his disposal, all that he's been able to secure in his life, he finds himself in a place of desperation. Verse 46, chapter 4. Once more he visited Jesus, visited Cana in Galilee where he had uh, turned the water into wine. Just in case you forgot like from a chapter earlier, just want to remind you, that's good, thank you for that. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal a son who was close to death. He officially, he begged Jesus. He begged him. He was at the end of himself. He was at the end of his means. He was at the end of the things that he could control. And he was in a place of desperation. I, I think that many of us, it has been quite some time since we were desperate. In a room with folks that are accomplished academically or professionally or socially, desperation hasn't been part of our story. 
And yet for others in the room, you know what it's like to be desperate. Maybe in that place even now. Been in the waiting room. When the doctor visits. And then the chaplain right behind. You realize that you're at the end of it all. Unless the Lord moves, there's no moving. You've seen the end of your money. But at the end of the bills. And you know the trapped feeling of not knowing how ends are going to meet. Desperation can be a gutted feeling. And yet it can also be in those places, in those seasons, or in those moments when we're able to see most clearly the handiwork and preserving hand of God in our lives. This may not be smart, but I've begun to pray for desperation. I don't, I don't know exactly what I'm praying for. I'm a little nervous about it. But what I want is for God to break through in ways that I can't imagine in my life. I want him to break through areas where my identity is shaped by things other than him. I want him to break through my spiritual numbness and dryness that comes up. I, I want him to resurrect aspects of my spiritual life that have gotten complacent. I, I don't know that God will do that if I'm comfortable. I want hunger or thirst for righteousness unless I'm hungry and thirsty. And so I've been praying that God would make me desperate for him. Verse 50, Jesus replies, go, your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word. Let that be instruction to us, that we can always take Jesus at his word. And he departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And so he and his whole household, well, they believed. The royal official's desperation was met by Jesus' love and care, and, it resulted, was, and the result was the official's belief. Jesus can be trusted with our desperate parts. Jesus receives us when we're at our end. The invitation for us is to believe that Jesus saves us in our desperation. And though that might not always mean that our loved one is miraculously healed, it does mean that Jesus is with us in our pain and in our agony, and he is the one in whom we can believe, even in our desperation. He's there. Over and over throughout John, I could continue, but over and over throughout John are these stories of belief. Water into wine, Nicodemus, the official's son, and there are others. The Samaritan woman, the Samaritan community, the calling of the disciples. Over and over, John is lifting up these stories like the royal official begging us to believe in Jesus. To believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who saves. And during our first pass through John, the focus was on stories that led to belief in Jesus. And as we turn to the middle third of John's gospel, the stories that we encounter will be stories of life. Here again from John 20. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's the Son of God. And that by believing, 
you may have life in his name. During these first few weeks, during the next few weeks, the stories that we'll explore are stories that point to life in Christ and life that is truly life. What will navigate our stories and adventures and histories of Jesus' life that give us clear and clear images of what life with Jesus looks like. We'll encounter stories ahead like the feeding of 5,000 people, where Jesus feeds an incredible crowd with bread and fish sandwiches from a young boy. Now, it's a story of a meal, of food, the substance that is, the, that is required to live. And what Jesus is saying is that the best meal, the truest meal, the thing that ultimately satisfies is him, that he is the one who gives life, not just fish and not just bread. We'll encounter stories of a woman, of a woman caught in the act of adultery. She's a guilty woman surrounded by presumably guiltless accusers, and yet Jesus interrupts the narrative by reminding the ones in the crowd and by reminding the reader and reminding us that he is the only one who is truly guiltless, and he offers life without condemnation. He offers life that is free of guilt and shame. A read of a man born blind, and Jesus heals him, and the man discovers a new life. And yet the enemies of Jesus, they, re they remain in their anger and their hatred. And Jesus says of them that they are the ones that are truly blind. And he says there's a blindness that's deeper than what you have with your eyes. At each and every turn, in the stories that John presents to us, there is an invitation, ever and always to us. An invitation not just to believe, but to live. He has written this book to us so that we might discover life. Life that is full and fulfilling. A life that is bound up in the love of God and service to others. A life of anticipation and satisfaction. A life that is healed and is healing and contributes to the healing of others by the power of the Spirit. And my hope is that you will move with us through these stories. In your seats when you came in, there's a reading guide. You, re you read ahead, so you read. Next week we'll be on chapter 6, so you, so you read parts of chapter 6. And then we come together, and then you read following. But more than just reading, I pray that you reflect on what God is doing. What he's doing in you, what he's doing around you, what he's doing in the story. And my deepest hope is that you and me, that we will continually say yes to Jesus and the life that he is offering to us. That you will pray, God, be the center. Be the center of my life and of my world and of my living and of my church and of my relationships and of my money and of my thoughts and of my images of my own self, that Jesus would be the center of it all. That you would say yes to his invitation of belief and say yes to his invitation of life. Let me pray for us. Father, the stories that we read, that we hear about Jesus, they're, um, they're not just stories or histories. They're not just a, a helpful narrative 
for us to consider and then move on from. They're invitations to us. They're invitations to us to, to say yes to you. To, to see the ways that you've been working throughout history for our good and for our healing and for the restoration of the world, God. I, I, I pray that, that even as we've reflected quite quickly on just a few stories from John's Gospel, Lord, I pray that Spirit, that you, would, that you would stir, that you would stoke, that you would... God, that you would arrest us. God, that you would, that you would point us, that you would remind us, that you would imagine with us what it looks like to place faith and belief in you and to experience the life that you extend to us. God, I pray that, that, for us, that for those of us in this room, Lord, we've, we've come into, this, we've come into this, this room, many of us physically hungry, but God, that's, that's nothing if we don't come into this place spiritually hungry. God, I pray that, uh, that you would find us in postures of, of thirsting and hungering for righteousness, of aching for you and more of you in our lives, God. Lord, you take us wherever we are. Whatever questions we have, whatever baggage we bring to the table, God, you, you take us and you embrace us. So God, I pray that more than anything that we would, that we would look to you, that you would deepen our faith and our belief, and that we would walk with you in life. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.